this topic, we're going to pull back the reins a little bit, so to speak. Um, when, we, when we read through the Bible and, and look at what it has to say about work, there's an important counterbalance that, that we cannot ignore. Uh, for, for as clearly as we are called to live out the image of God through our work, we are also equally as clearly called to live out the image of God through our rest as well. Now, now when you think about rest, let's just admit we as Americans do not thrive as well in this area. We're not known for being good at our resting. Uh, Regarding vacation days, for example, uh, lots of studies show that, that when compared to the rest of the world, we receive comparatively fewer days off, but even what we do receive, we rarely use completely. Um, industries like sleep aids and stress relievers, those are big business in our country. We seem to always be looking for that next new gadget that's going to save us time and energy and theoretically allow us to rest more. Um, and and we'll, even, we'll even wear our busyness as a badge of honor, don't we, sometimes? View that as a positive thing. I mean, when was the last time someone asked you how you were doing and, and when you say, man, I've been, been really busy lately, they reprimanded you for it or at least gently encouraged you to rethink your workload. I mean, that, has that ever happened? I can't remember a time that that's happened to me, that someone's been that direct and said, well, is that good? to be that busy. So, yeah, we're just, rest isn't one of those things that, that we as Americans are, are, are all that good at, but when it, when it comes to the topic of rest in the Bible, we, we can't overlook and we can't ignore what God has to say about it. And, and sometimes a sermon or, or a discussion of rest from a biblical viewpoint will will uh, focus on the physical benefits of rest. And, and I, I think we can rightly mention that God has created us as finite creatures, and without adequate physical rest, we, we tend to bring harm on ourselves. And, and, and that's true. That, that's a component of rest. But that's not the primary reason that God calls us to rest. And so other than to say that I I wholeheartedly agree that there's physical benefits to physical rest, I'll say little more about that today. We're not going to focus on that. The bigger reason that God calls us to rest is something much deeper and much more beneficial than just physical bodily health. But before we get there, we've got to look at the foundation for this topic. So you can go ahead and do what we did a couple weeks ago and turn with me in in your Bibles to the beginning of Genesis. So just like a discussion about work has to start in the story of creation, so a discussion about rest needs to start there as well. So when when we read through Genesis chapter 1, We are drawn into this story that contains purposeful rhythm throughout God's work of creation. 
So God goes to work separating one thing from another in creation. So in, in, uh, on day one, for instance, he's separating light from darkness. And you see that theme continuing throughout the days of creation. God speaks his approval regarding the things he's created each day. And then finally, the passage of time is marked by the phrase evening and morning each day. So, so the whole scene repeats itself in this, in this purposeful rhythm with some slight variation. But then finally you get to the sixth day and, and creation is finished and it's Kind of, you know, the cherry on top is it, it was very good when God has created mankind at the end of sixth, on the sixth day. So that's the end of chapter one. The end of sixth day is the end of chapter one. And then you get to chapter two, and there's still another day. Now, I, you've probably heard before that, that the chapter and verse numbers in our Bible are not original to the text. Those, those were not put there in the beginning. Um, the chapter numbers are, are attributed uh, usually to a guy named Stephen Langton back in the 13th century. And I would love to ask Mr. Langton, why did you start chapter 2 before that first account of creation was done? Why not start chapter 2 in verse 4 of what we have as chapter 2? Like, that just seems more sense. seems like that makes more sense. And maybe in heaven someday I'll get the chance to ask him that. But but let's ignore the chapter break for a moment and recognize that the beginning of chapter 2 is really the ending of the account of creation from chapter 1. So even though there's a big 2 there, the story still continues from chapter 1. So after the rhythm and repetition of days 1 through 6, day 7 stands out. It stands out in a special way. So, so look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So there's been six days of creation, and on the seventh, God took a sabbat in Hebrew. On the seventh day, God rested from his work. We know enough about God to know that this wasn't a rest necessitated by physical exhaustion. God wasn't tired on the seventh day. He wasn't weary from the creating that he had been doing. Rather, the rest which God took was a purposeful ceasing. That, that Hebrew word sabbat means to cease. It, it, it doesn't mean to rest from being tired. God ceased from his work. So if he wasn't tired, then why rest? Why cease from his work? What, what is the need for this seventh day that's different from the other six? Why why cease from working on this day? The verses here in Genesis chapter 2 really don't directly answer that for us. We're not given the reasons specifically. It's kind of a cliffhanger that really is only resolved as you continue through the Bible, studying this topic of rest, or specifically the topic of the Sabbath. 
The only hints we're given here in uh, chapter 2 involve the seventh day being called a blessing and being called holy. That's really all we're given here. But based upon how the theme is developed in the rest of the Bible, here's why I believe God rested on the seventh day. He's setting an example for us that he is going to call us to follow. The call doesn't come yet, but the example is being put forth, setting that foundation for the call that will come later. So as we continue on, as we move into Exodus chapter 20, we're going to see where that call is first given, where, the, 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 uh, where it becomes a command from God to rest on this seventh day. So if you want, you can turn to Exodus 20 with me. This chapter, chapter 20, is, is the famous one where God spoke from Mount Sinai and gave his people, whom he had recently set free from slavery in Egypt, he gave them the Ten Commandments. It was then that God formally instituted the Sabbath command. And this is what he says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. He says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So again, as I said, one of the main reasons I believe God is setting an example of rest in Genesis chapter 2 is because when God calls his people to have this weekly Sabbath, he prompts them to remember, remember what he did on the seventh day of creation. He points them back to that, that seventh day. His activity on that day was one that he intended his people to consider and to then emulate. And so from, from that day at Mount Sinai forward, God's people became widely known for their observance of a weekly Sabbath day. I mean, th th this was one of the defining marks of Jews. And so Jews back throughout history and, and Jews today are known for the great lengths to which they will go in order to not work on the Sabbath. And so again, that... Of course, this includes a, a Jewish person's occupational job, but, but it goes beyond that. It, it's anything in daily life that might sniff of work. So that means that in addition to not going into the office or not clocking in on the job, a Jewish person would not cook or walk long distances or harvest or sow or build something on the Sabbath. Um, it even includes something as minute as pushing a button. Right? I, th I think I've spoken about this before maybe, but, but elevators in Jerusalem and, and other Jewish areas on the Sabbath have a Sabbath setting so that you can still use it but not have to push a button 
So normally when you enter an elevator, you've got to push a button to go where you want to go. Well, in, on these Sabbath settings, the elevators will go to each floor, one after the other, and the doors will just automatically open and close, and so you don't have to do anything other than walk in, stand there, and when it gets to your floor, you walk out. But it's not just, it's not just Jews that have instituted rules in order to refrain from physical work on the Sabbath. Our, our country has a history of that as well. Things called blue laws. Um, in some places, laws that are still on the books, even though they're, they're maybe not enforced. Uh, the, these blue laws made it illegal to do certain things on Sunday, which would have been considered work. Um, and now, they also banned things which would have distracted a person from the worship of God, but a main goal was to make sure that as few people as possible would be working on Sunday. And, and there may be something inside of us that longs to return to that kind of a context. But, but as we consider those feelings within us, we, we would do well to look at that original generation of Jews who, who received the fourth commandment at Mount Sinai. I think it's safe to assume that that generation largely kept the commandment in the physical sense. Now, in a way, they were forced to do so because the manna was already falling at this point. And if you remember, manna would not fall on the Sabbath. And so they would gather twice as much the day before and then rest from that work on the Sabbath. So in a way, they were kind of forced into, at least in that aspect, keeping the Sabbath. But even though they may have physically rested every Sabbath, listen to how the psalmist describes that first generation. And, and this is from uh, Psalm chapter 95. It says it this way in, in verse 8. It says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So in this psalm, Psalm 95, the events of Numbers chapters uh, 13 and 14 are, are referenced here. So, so what happened was less than a year after God's people uh, received the Ten Commandments, they followed God away from Mount Sinai, and God led them directly to the edge of the Promised Land. They went there right away. Before entering, spies were sent into the land for 40 days, and they observed the land. They observed the people who dwelled there. Upon returning, the spies reported that, that the land was very good, but the people who lived there were very strong. They were even described as giants. So two of the spies encouraged the people to enter the land anyway, in obedience of God, and take possession of it. They said, God has called us to do this, we should go. The other ten spies spread fear and caused the people to rebel against God's command to go in. They, they helped convince the people that it really would be better to just go back to slavery in Egypt. 
because the, the people, because the nation listened to the 10 spies, that generation was banned from entering the land. And God caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years until they had all died. And so what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 95 is drawing a connection between the promised land and rest. Had that first generation, had, had, had the people trusted God through obediently entering into the promised land, they would have been blessed to find rest in that land. Instead, they were a people who physically rested on the Sabbath day. They followed the Sabbath command not to work, but because they didn't trust in God, they never experienced the true rest that would have been available to them. They might have been physically resting, but they were not completely resting in God. And there's a difference in that. We can physically rest, but not really be resting. And what that tells me is that the purpose of the fourth commandment, the the command to observe the Sabbath, was always about so much more than just physical rest. And yes, that was part of it. And physical rest on the Sabbath would have been physically beneficial. But its higher purpose was to remind the people that real rest came as the result of trusting in God. Now, as the story of God's people continued to unfold, that first generation did indeed pass away after 40 years. And at that time, a new generation had grown up, and and now it was their turn to enter the promised land. But before they went in, Moses sought to remind them about their history and about the God of their history. And and that that is the context of the book of Deuteronomy. That's when Deuteronomy was given. This second generation had grown up. They were preparing to enter, and, and, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. And so in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are given a second time, this time to that second generation. And, and notice, however, that when Moses gave the fourth commandment again, something changed in it. Something's different about it when he gave it this second time. So I'll read it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and you watch for the difference here. So this is chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
So did you catch the difference there as, as Moses gave the commandment the second time? Uh, in Exodus 20, the, the command to keep the Sabbath is undergirded by having the people remember back to God resting on the seventh day of creation. Here in Deuteronomy 5, the command is undergirded by having the people remember back to the Exodus, God showing his mighty power in setting them free from slavery in Egypt. So now the focus is still upon God's rest at creation. There's still that theme in Deuteronomy 5, but it's brought to the forefront for us here that the focus also must be on God's mighty work in setting the people free. So the command remains the same, but by highlighting the exodus, we are shown that the purpose of the Sabbath was always about so much more than just stopping work. It's about resting in such a way that a person is truly and completely resting in God. Moses is saying here, remember back to your parents and how they were set free, and and some of them would have been kids, set free from slavery in Egypt and what God did. That was God's work. I mean, the Israelites couldn't take credit for that. Not the plagues, not the being set free, not the Red Sea parting. I mean, none of it. That was God's work, and they were simply, that first generation was trusting, following after him, really resting in what God was doing. And Moses says here, with this command of the Sabbath, remember back to that, the work that God had done. I think their physical rest on the Sabbath day would have helped them to remember that, that deeper purpose, not just physically stopping work, but, but resting in God's work, resting in what God had done. When we look at Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, that, that theme continues to unfold. In those chapters, the, the writer of Hebrews is looking back upon Psalm 95, which again looks back upon that first generation coming out of Egypt, the ones who were not obedient to God's command to enter the promised land. And what the writer of Hebrews does in chapters 3 and 4 is he shows us that the rest which would have come through Moses in the promised land, the rest that that first generation would have experienced would have still been inferior to the rest which comes through Jesus. So even though that first generation could have entered into the promised land and found rest from their travels, rest from the nations around them that were threatening them, that's still just taste, in a way a small taste of what what is available through Jesus. It was never about the physical rest that the people would experience in the promised land. Rest from travels, rest from enemies. I mean, those are good things, right? Those are good things. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 8 even mentions that, well, Joshua led the second generation in. They did go into the promised land. They did rest from their travels. They did have rest from their enemies as they trusted in God. But yet, even they hadn't truly entered God's rest. True rest, as the writer of Hebrews is saying, can only be found 
if people will be obedient to God and rest in his strength and wisdom in, in all areas of life. That's where true rest comes from. So Hebrews 3 and 4 shows us that even though we are not offered the physical rest uh, in the physical promised land of Israel, the ultimate rest, God's rest, is something which we are invited to enter. And Hebrews 4 points out that it's, it's not just belief that leads to this rest, but faith in God, trust in God. That, that original generation of Jews didn't have faith that God would provide them with rest in the promised land. They didn't trust him. That's why they didn't enter in. We are encouraged, in Hebrews especially here, to not act faithlessly like them or to not trust as that generation did, but to instead trust God's words to us, to which God promises that he will give us rest in him. Hebrews 4.9 says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it's only found when we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It's the only way we find that real Sabbath rest. We cease attempting to work hard for our own salvation and instead rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago uh, when we took communion. Whoever enters God's rest, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 says, also rests from his own works. That's, that's rest. Resting in Jesus and in his work. Jesus himself said when he, when he walked the earth, he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, Jesus himself said it. Coming to Jesus means we cease from laboring for our salvation and rest in him and his completed work. The Old, uh, Old Testament Sabbath command, it was to be a foretaste of that rest. Resting from physical labor once a week looked ahead to completely resting in Jesus for all eternity, not, not just now, but for eternity as well. You know, one, one interesting thing about the seventh day of creation, if we go back to Genesis 2, there was no evening and morning on the seventh day like there was the other sixth. It is, it, it is noticeably absent. And many Bible scholars believe this means that the Sabbath, truly resting in God, is not a once-a-week thing. It's not a thing that has no end. It is an eternal rest, one that begins now in this life and then finds its fulfillment on the new earth where we will rest for all eternity. I mean, eternity is one long Sabbath, you might say. Resting fully in God without end. That sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> that sounds great. But I want to circle back to focusing on the question that I asked in the title of the sermon. How do I rest from work? So we've been talking about work the, these last two weeks. 
just kind of had a walkthrough of rest as it's shown in the Bible, but, but what's the connection there, right? I mean, how, how, do I, how do I truly rest in this life especially? And we've already answered it in the, in the spiritual sense. We, we rest from our work spiritually by trusting in Jesus and his work on the cross that sets us free from slavery to sin. So we, we cease striving to achieve that by our own efforts. We rest in that way. I believe that, that resting in Jesus spiritually, resting in Jesus as it pertains to our salvation, is also the key to resting in Jesus fully in every area of life. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. When I rest in Jesus spiritually, when I trust him to provide me the salvation that I need, when I rest in him spiritually, the work that I do in my life continues to be important, but it doesn't become ultimate. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't impact my salvation in him. I'm not, I'm not saved because of the things that I'm doing. Those are not ultimate works. They're still important works, works that we're called to, works that bring honor and glory to God, works that are, are how we live out our salvation, but they're not ultimate in terms of our salvation. When, when Jesus offered rest to those who came to him with their labors and their burdens, it was certainly a spiritual rest. There is no doubt about that. But I think it was also a complete rest in this life and in the one that would come after in eternity. So, so if our jobs, our occupational jobs, become ultimate in our life, we place a burden on ourselves that, that we don't need to carry. We're not meant to carry. When, when, our, when our parenting becomes ultimate, we place a burden on ourselves that we're not meant to carry. When our uh, schoolwork or our grades become ultimate, we place a burden on ourselves that we're not meant to carry, and you can say that about anything, when anything that we do during the day becomes ultimate, when our work of any kind becomes ultimate, we place a burden upon ourselves that we don't need to carry. And that's what Jesus says, come to me, you who are carrying those burdens, and I will give you rest. Now again, it doesn't mean our work isn't important. Our work is important, and that's why the Bible speaks so often about it, and that's why we're going through this sermon series. But when we rest in Jesus by trusting in him in all things, then our work is kept in its proper place, not becoming a heavy burden with ultimate ramifications. So, so let, me, let me ask the question this way. If, if you and I were to examine ourselves and see that, that we're not good at physically resting, is there maybe an indication there that we aren't fully resting in Jesus? Could, could any overworking in our life be an indication of self-reliance? Could any overworking be an indication of pride? or an indication of a lack of trust or, or, or seeking control in, in some ways. A, a, a physical Sabbath, as prescribed by the Old Testament, would have quickly pinpointed any of those things. 
not working on a day would have hopefully caused a person to reflect on their situation and ask themselves if they were truly resting in God and trusting in Him in all things. Because you, you, your stress level when you're not when you're not working, right? Your stress level because you're not working. If all you can do is think about all the things that you feel like you need to be doing, that, that's, a, that's a signal, right? Those are lights flashing that ought to cause us to ask, am I truly resting in Jesus if I can't even physically rest for one day during the week? A, a physical Sabbath today, physically resting, can do that for us. I don't, I don't want to get into rules and, and, and things like that, traditions around it, but, but just simply physically resting can prompt us to examine ourselves and see whether we might not be trusting Jesus, resting in Jesus as we ought to be, as he calls us to in him. Now, earlier this month, uh, uh, Jacob Cernick's dad uh, had joined us for Morning Men, and, and he was sharing some thoughts from uh, Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4. And the whole, time he was, uh, the whole time he was talking and we were looking at that passage, I, I, I couldn't help but think, man, Paul is a guy who really did find rest in Jesus, real, complete rest now don't get me wrong, he worked very hard, and we, we can see that in the letters especially that he wrote. We can see that in the book of Acts as he travels around on his missionary journeys. He proclaimed the gospel in all of these towns and areas. He, he, would, he would work to provide for his own physical needs while he did so. He would often be, be oppressed uh, by, by different groups in these towns, and he suffered because of his work, and yet... In Philippians chapter 4, Paul speaks about rejoicing in the Lord and not being anxious and having peace in God, being content, doing all things through Christ. I, I'm confident that as, as Paul was writing that letter, he was not, he was not speaking those words in the abstract. I, I'm sure that was his experience as he trusted in Jesus and, and, and then subsequently found rest as he did so. I mean, Paul, even in the midst of working hard for Jesus in difficult circumstances, found rest in him. It's why he could say that to live is Christ is, and to die is gain. That's a statement of, of trust, a statement of rest. Live is Christ, die is gain. It's why Paul wasn't stressed about whether he would live or die soon or if that was down the road. He, it's why, why Paul could look at those opposed to him who were still preaching Christ and say, well, at least Christ is still being proclaimed. And, and it's why, why Paul could say that it was God who works in us, that we might work for his good pleasure. Uh, I mean, Paul had Paul had figured it out. He, he had experienced that, that rest in Jesus. Man, what love to be able to make those statements that Paul made with the conviction that Paul made them. And, and I can and we can as we rest in Jesus. And it starts again. It starts by resting in him spiritually. We trust him for our salvation 
And then that is the key to resting in Jesus fully. When we put our trust in Jesus in salvation, the more we rest in that way in him, the more we ought to rest in all things in Jesus. So whatever burden you find yourself carrying today, bring it to Jesus. Drop it at his feet as a matter of trust in him because that's where the rest comes from. It's from that trust in Christ. Uh, Paul, in another place, writes to Timothy, and, and uh, in his letter to Timothy, he, he's talking about how bodily training or physical training has, has some value, but godliness is of value in every way. And I think likewise, physical rest is of some value, right? There's physical value to it. But spiritual rest is of value in every way. In every way. So may we be people who are good at rest, unlike, <laughs> unlike what we are known for as Americans. As followers of Jesus, May we be people who are good at rest because we are trusting in him and that just leads us to that place of rest. Let's stand together and and let's ask God to continue leading us in that because that's not always our nature, right? Our nature can be to grab hold of those things and take control and, 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 and put it back on our shoulders, the weight of that work. But let's ask him to help us give those to him. Heavenly Father, you, from, from the beginning, from creation, were calling us to find rest and find peace in you. And I thank you that you don't just call us to that, but that you provide the way for it to happen. And we know that's ultimately through, through the work of Jesus on the cross and us trusting in him and his work and by trusting, resting in it. God, so would you give us a proper perspective of the work that you call us to? We know that work is good. We know that it brings you honor. We know that, it, that it, it, it's part of your purposes for us but help us to keep it in the right place. God, there's, there's times, there's, there's maybe some of us right now who feel so burdened and heavy laden. Would you help us to lay those things down and allow you to carry them? Help us to trust in you and to follow after you God, it's maybe not entering a physical promised land like it was for that first generation of Jews, but it's, it's to rest in you in our lives, wherever it is that you lead us. Help us to do that. God, we know that's difficult. Help us to encourage one another in that. If we tell each other that we're busy, help us to call that out when it's needed, to take those burdens and put them at your feet. God, I thank you that, you that you promise us that there's rest in you, in this life, but in eternity as well. We so look forward to that day on the new earth where 
We'll be doing things, but we'll be resting in you as we do them. I thank you that that's what we have to look forward to. Help us to do that even now, to have a, a taste of what it will be like then. We give you praise this morning. God, we're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for the work that you've done to bring us to salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen.